what's up, everybody? This is Tim Evko. And this is M. David Green. And you're listening to episode number 32 of the Versioning Podcast. This is a place where we get together to discuss the industry of the web, from development to design, with some of the people making it happen today and planning where it's headed in the next version. So today we're going to be speaking with Chris Ward, who is a technical writer, blogger, and web developer. And we're going to be talking with him uh, amongst some things, his latest book and web development, of course. So let's go ahead and get this version started. Hey, Chris, good to see you. Hey, how are you doing? I'm really pleased you were able to join us on the show today. This is the versioning show, and one of the things we like to do is ask our guests a philosophical question to get the ball rolling. And your philosophical question for today is, in your current career, what version are you and why? Ooh, you know what? As someone who is easily bored and constantly trying new things, I think I'm going to be a rolling release. <laughs> very nice, very nice. You, you do say you've, you've been trying a lot of different things. How do you introduce yourself? How do you summarize your career for people when you're letting people know who you are and what you do? Well, nowadays I say I do technical writing and tech journalism, and there's a little bit of just sort of tech blogging in the middle, but I think there's enough crossover between all three, like concentric circles meeting in the middle there somewhere. But depending on the audience, if I'm saying that to developers, I will mention that I used to be a developer full-time. If I'm not an audience of developers, then maybe I won't mention that. <laughs> so what kind of development were you doing when you were doing development? So I actually spent most of my time prior to about 2009, 10, maybe 11, so 10, 11, predominantly actually doing Drupal development and contributing to Drupal as well. I have a couple of commits in Drupal core, so mostly PHP and content management systems and things like that. But then I took a bit of a turn into other domains after that. Oh, that's interesting because, uh, you know, Drupal, it, it's got a lot of back end and it's got a lot of front end. Where were you focusing your attention? Well, the Drupal community has a lot of what are kind of termed site builders or people who do a bit of everything because it tended, it, at the time anyway, it tended to be quite popular in smaller agencies. And especially this was when I was in Australia where most agencies are quite small. Even a big agency is maybe only 30, 40 people. So you still had a lot of kind of generalists. So I was doing a lot of generalist tasks but also some kind of dev lead even helping with a bit of kind of technical sales and stuff i've always been a bit of a generalist really <laughs> <laughs> so for the folks who might not be familiar can you can you explain drupal i mean it, it's got a context and it's got a whole ecosystem around it well i've been out of it for a little while and i would say the context has changed a bit but it is a php based content management system Sort of a much steeper learning curve than something like WordPress, which is another very popular PHP content management system. But you can generally accomplish more complex things with it. The catchphrase always used to be that WordPress powers, what is it, I don't know, 20% of the internet or something crazy. But Drupal powers the top 10% of websites on the internet. Like it's, it was always better suited at bigger, more powerful things. I would say that it's changed a bit now, to be honest with you. And I've been out of it for a while and the community has changed and the community around it has changed. And I witness it from afar these days, but I would say the, the whole dialogue around the community has changed a bit too. So I'm not an expert anymore. <laughs> I've always heard that with WordPress, you can build a website and with Drupal, you can build WordPress. That was always my, uh, my favorite saying. I've never heard that, but that's, that's not bad. <laughs> yeah. So how did you initially get into the world of web development? I did a computer science degree. I actually did, 
Oh, we did, again, suiting my personality, it was actually quite a broad degree. It was a multimedia computing degree, science degree in London. I, was, I lived in London, but then moved to Australia mid-2000s. But then I just sort of fell into PHP jobs. My first web agency job was actually in a cold fusion agency. I just sort of fell into PHP and just never really left it until I got more into mobile work and things like that. Yeah, I don't know. It just There was just more work and it just popped up and then I just kept doing it for a few years. No real considered effort. <laughs> These days the cool kids don't even know what PHP is. No, it's very true. It'll, it'll be cool again. <laughs> I, I think so. I think so. And recently you've just published a book on responsive design. I think this is the second edition, right? Yeah, but I didn't write the first edition. So when you say my latest book, this is my first book. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. So like PHP, responsive design is one of those terms. I think it's it's kind of got a ring of the antique about it because so many people are already familiar with it and we've moved on to different terminology. But responsive design itself still has, is very relevant today. I would say it's more relevant and becoming more relevant again. I think some of the problems that it initially set out to solve have maybe sort of been fixed in very large inverted commas and actually it's going to be useful in the future and in the present for solving other new problems like different sorts of device capabilities not just screen size and things like that but other capabilities of devices too and responding to user context and location and time of day and all sorts of things like that and I know some people have different words for that but I would kind of argue that if it's about responding to device capabilities, then I think we could use the same word. <laughs> That's an important distinction because responsive design to a lot of people, myself sometimes included, means everything gets squishy. But that's not what responsive means at all. Yeah, and, and, and it's kind of me maybe not necessarily being controversial, but just saying that it could be broader than that. We have frameworks in place now with new, new inventions in CSS and that helping with the, the squishiness a lot more so we can start to experiment with some other things too and a lot of a lot of the sort of apis you now have available in html and modern javascript are helping us test and respond to all sorts of other things some coming like it's such in flux at the moment it is almost like a few years back like there's some apis that i remember writing about that i when i was writing the book i discovered a lot of them were, had changed or even been removed so they're all sort of in in flux a lot so in the second edition of Jumpstart Responsive Web Design, what was the, the main sort of concept that you, you spoke about related to responsive web design? Well, the, the point of the Jumpstart books is kind of aimed at someone who knows a little bit about a particular subject or maybe knows next to nothing and just knows a little bit of prerequisite knowledge, i.e. HTML or something like that and wants to sort of learn a concept in a weekend. That's basically the premise of the book series. I was tasked with bringing the first edition up to date, and in all honesty, I think I ended up probably rewriting more than um, I initially said I would. <laughs> I mostly used the first edition as kind of a framework to talk about, but the actual content changed a reasonable amount. Um, so it covers the kind of the building blocks of a page and the page elements, it then talks about obvious things like media queries and viewports. Uh, we cover text, we cover images, um, and then media, and then kind of a bit at the end about some of the stuff we've just been talking about, about sort of new responsive. 
You know, that's the kind of a thing I'd like to dig into a little bit more, because as, as I said, the term responsive design has been around for a while, but it's, uh, what, what are the things that are making it new these days? And uh, you, you brought up a few different contexts in which responsive, the definition is expanding beyond the visual. Yeah, I guess firstly, different sorts of devices. No, we thought we had it hard with having to adapt to new mobile devices. And actually, to a certain extent, mobile devices, adapting to mobile devices has got a little bit easier again because those devices have got better but we also now have games consoles tvs cars probably in the near future or in screen cars in, in cars maybe advertising boards actually the kind of applications of screens is quite widespread now and some of them are more standard than others so it might just be an android browser uh, like samsung i think their fridges have a, basically an android browser in and that's going to be used by a lot of people even if we want to get crazy out there and i didn't cover this in the book but it just popped into my head things like voice interfaces i mean people don't necessarily browse a website with a voice interface but they will browse data from a web service or something like that and and just even thinking about how to repurpose your designs and and content and as many of these new use cases as possible in my mind would also be kind of responsive or the new responsive or adaptive or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> that makes me think a lot about the concept of UI-less design and how you could you, you might need to respond to that in terms of you know push notifications, right? A user could interact with your application without ever actually going to the URL, maybe like once or twice to sign up for push notifications. But after that, you can interact with quite a bit of things just by tapping buttons on the push notifications that come up to you and, and that's it. Exactly. I mean, you get very limited design capabilities in a push notification, but still it's designed to think about. <laughs> it's interesting because it starts to get to the point where everything becomes part of responsive design all the way down to accessibility issues. So if you're thinking about it that way, I mean, how do you, you focus people in terms of what you would consider to be the limits of what people need to learn today in terms of responsive design? Whew. Okay, well, now you've got me all excited by saying it could be everything. You're telling me to, to rate it in a bit. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> where, where would you put people's focus first, I suppose? Like for the developer who's out there, he's inherited the homepage for a company that developed it in 2008. It's this thing that only works on 980 pixel wide browsers. Where do you put your attention first when you want to consider the context for, for what that needs to be turned into for a responsive design? First, I will give the broad pragmatic response and then I'll give the more, the more helpful response. The broad pragmatic response would be try to find out what your users are using. And if they're all using old machines and old resolutions, then maybe you don't need to worry so much. Who knows? I mean, it depends kind of on your audience. But then once you have that information, if it does, of course, present the fact that there's a multitude of different devices, then you focus on the major desktop browsers. You focus on the major mobile operating systems at kind of reasonable devices. You can't, especially with Android, you can't cover everything and you don't really need to, to be fair anyway. And that's, to be honest with you, probably mostly enough. You know, test on some 13 inch laptops, test on some 27 inch screens if you can, or use like simulators to, to do that if you can't. And that's, that's probably enough for most cases. You know, what we're talking about with the, the, other, the other subjects is, you know, a bit more kind of out there. And if you've got the budget to be doing that kind of stuff, you, you've, <laughs> you're, sort of, you're sort of okay anyway. So. 
I like that you start with an audience-driven focus because you really think about what's going to be practical. And one of the things I, I noticed you were talking about, a lot of people think about, you know, HTML5 immediately introduced all of these things that allow you to be more responsive and then CSS is used to style it. But you also get into the JavaScript side of things as well. I think firstly, because there's some, some of the less visual tests are JavaScript based, but also the ability to react dynamically to certain things is, is a JavaScript functionality, of course. I tried to stick as much, no, actually not as much. I tried, I tried to stick to pure JavaScript. Again, I think that's more possible than it used to be. In fact, my JavaScript knowledge was fairly out of date. And in the past kind of year or so, I've sort of dived back into it for various reasons and discovered how much it's changed for the positive. And yeah, it's mostly for kind of little bits of dynamic changing, testing for functionality, things like that, really. Not a, not a massive amount. One of the other things that you, you talk about in your book that really caught my attention was all of these different paradigms for what responsive means, you know, whether it's progressive enhancement or graceful degradation or, or mobile first. Can you tell people who might be entering this some of the distinctions that you found among those different perspectives? Okay, I'll start with mobile first, and then I'll have to wake myself up to remember the way around for the other two. <laughs> <laughs> so mobile first is basically designing first for mobile the name is is kind of gives it away and building from there so you take the premise that the majority of users these days which isn't strictly true but it's generally at least 50 50 will be using a mobile device you build a fantastic design that suits the use cases that you need and they need on, on a mobile device and then you build up from there and you can add more functionality as you go up the the kind of the device tree if you like or across the device tree, however you like to look at it. But first and foremost, it should be a good, positive, strong experience on the mobile device, basically. And then kind of the other way around for that is the other perspective of picking your device that is the optimal for you. And again, this depends on use case. If you're designing an office application, then you might be able to take a, a bigger a big assumption that a lot of people would generally be at a desktop computer, so you have a certain screen real estate and things like that. And you then sort of strip away design elements and functionality as you go down the device tree to make it just usable or just bearable or whatever your remit may be for, for those users. I mean, it, it's basically just two different perspectives on kind of the same, yeah, it's basically, I'm, I'm getting tangled in my own words here, but it's kind of, one is starting with the smallest device and working up and one is starting with your peak device and working down, I suppose. Yeah, it depends on your use case. I think the hidden assumption in that is that for a smaller device, it's assumed that you're going to be having reduced functionality. Yeah, I suppose that has generally been the assumption. And I guess the new thinking these days is that shouldn't necessarily be the case. There may need to be rethought functionality because you have less screen real estate. People are using fingers. They don't have a full proper keyboard, etc., etc. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it should get a worse experience, just a more suitable experience, I suppose, would be mobile first. Yeah, I guess that's, that's probably a much better way of saying it. <laughs> mobile also gives you access to a number of things that desktop may not, such as location or integrated cameras or all sorts of things that might be appropriate, depending on the application. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And sometimes I found, not necessarily as much with websites, more with kind of mobile applications, but that sometimes the experience can be better. Things like with iOS and Android, you have the concept of a share extension, which enables you to easily share links or files or, or whatever between other applications in the operating system. 
And Mac OS and Windows have that to a certain extent, but often developers don't bother implementing it. Whereas on mobile, it's generally there. So sometimes actually you can get a better experience. So you mentioned tech journalism earlier. Can you uh, define what the what scope of that is? The scope, okay. Well, to go back a step. So the reason I sort of uh, got into doing this book in the first place is I actually used to edit the mobile channel for SitePoint. And that came from coming out of the CMS days, I discovered way back when, 2000 and <laughs> clickety-click, I don't know, nine or something, PhoneGap, Nitrobi PhoneGap as it was then, before Adobe bought it. And I actually found it amazing just because it gave the ability for web designers to turn HTML and JavaScript and CSS into mobile-like applications. And these days now it's less needed, but in those days it was actually pretty, pretty groundbreaking. And that's kind of where I started getting more into mobile and then ended up doing more native stuff and things like that. But by the by, I was editing the, the channel for SitePoint and sort of broadened from there. I, I don't write for SitePoint article-wise much anymore. I just don't have the time, but I do a lot of, I guess I cover maybe three main topics. One would be still a lot of mobile. One is a lot of actual things like distributed and microservice-based systems like Docker and Kubernetes and things like that. And also I'm quite into things like blockchain and decentralized systems and stuff. So, But again, as a, as a journalist and kind of blogging about getting introducing people to a project, as I said already, I'm a, I'm a generalist. So I tend to have lots of little bits of knowledge about lots of things as opposed to being an expert in any one of them. But that also involves going to some events, interviewing people, etc etc and it's it's fun it's nice to meet people and hear their ideas and and if i can find a way of writing about it for somebody then i will basically so does the journalism ever influence stuff you work on as a developer hmm. to a certain extent sometimes in that through those activities i find something i find out about something cool and useful that is worth bringing back to a project or to a team but also i mean i i tend to write for developers anyway, so I will always build example applications and things like that, but mostly in terms of just getting exposure to more ideas. And I guess through the journalism, you don't always just get introduced to technical concepts, you get introduced to the business as well. So hearing about a project and what they're going to do in the future and not just a cool bit of code, but something actually that someone's excited about because it's got a good customer base and it's stable and it's got a future and you know, just being able to make a few extra decisions about a project as well, if that makes a sort of a sense. I don't know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's great to be in a position to be able to help people find out about those things. Yeah. And I know that you've also been doing a lot of public speaking, haven't you? I guess I did a little bit in Australia, but when I came back to Europe for the next couple of years, it's easier to travel to places. So I suppose just taking advantage of it as much as possible. I like to make an idiot of myself. I mostly these days do a lot of talks on documentation and helping people understand how to document projects better because most developers don't like documenting their projects. But a few other things here and there. I've been doing quite a few talks on Atom recently, the text editor, because I kind of like it a lot. But mostly documentation talks these days. I'm kind of pretty happy in the documentation world. You get a yeah. lot of respect from me for that. I don't think documentation gets enough attention. This is kind of why it's fun doing it as well, because it's a much smaller sector and you generally get that response. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are your bullet points on documentation, just so the people out here can hear it? Pun intended. <laughs> Again, it's use case and sort of user story, which if you're working on a sort of a, a bigger project has generally been done at some point anyway. So feedback into that, the project planning, the user story planning, and get an idea of who the audience are and what they want to accomplish, not just write what you want to tell someone. 
then it would be actually one uh, one tip that I've been giving to people a lot recently that feeds nicely into Site Point Two because ad supported media tends to do it quite well is good structure because people don't read from end to end. In fact. Certain cultures do, but the vast majority don't. They just glance around and scroll backwards and forwards, and they look for certain things. So if you have good heading structure, you have code examples, images, videos, whatever, they're things that grab people's attention, and then they read the text around it. And the reason, of course, ad-supported sites do this better is because they need people to read it. So, so, so they're better at it, so you can learn a lot from them. And then actually, I would say, take advantage of documentation being online. It doesn't have to just be text. You can add interaction. You can add interactive consoles, videos, code pen examples, etc., etc. That stuff helps a lot. That's by all means not a complete list, but there's the three that came to mind immediately. It sounds like it's the sort of thing that can also play into the work that you do when you publish articles out and like basically build up your own audience too. You learn a lot from from each of the fields. So yeah, that's fantastic. So how can our listeners find you online and find out more about the things that you've been working on? My website where I kind of aggregate everything I do is gregariousmammal.com. <laughs> I have a nickname of Christian Chiller and Gregarious Mammal is, was somewhere I read the dictionary definition of a chinchilla, so it just kind of stuck. <laughs> so, and you can find my, most of my articles and podcasts and talks aggregated there. And you can also probably hear me talk way too much on Twitter at Chris Chinch as well. They're probably the two main places to find me. Fantastic. Well, we'll definitely put all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for joining us today on The Versioning Show. No worries. Thanks for having me. So one thing that came out of a little chat that Chris had with us afterwards was that he and his wife actually have a podcast. Yeah, they do. And it sounds interesting. They both talk about tech journalism, which... Well, I'm not entirely familiar with, so I do write for SitePoint every once in a while, but outside of that, I know there's Wired and TechCrunch. I don't really pay too much attention to to those sorts of things. I kind of just get all of my information from emails and Twitter. <laughs> I know what you mean, and I tend to keep most of my writing pretty evergreen, but there's a lot to be said for writing about the cutting edge of what's happening in tech, because something is changing constantly, and there's always something new to write about. Yeah, there really is. There's at least 10 articles every time Chrome publishes a new version. One of the things that I liked about the way he approaches his writing is that he seems to go and write about the things that he's interested in, even if they're not the latest thing or the coolest thing. Like, so for example, he's talking about the, the Adam Text Editor. And Adam's been around for a while, but he feels like writing about it now because it's something that he's into and he finds an audience for it. Yeah, and things like that are, there are always tips and tricks that you can share to just help people out. I mean... Your text editor is the thing that you use every single day. I'm probably, hopefully, if I'm doing my job, using my text editor more than I'm using my browser. And every single time someone shares a tip on, hey, you can do this in Sublime or VS Code or Atom, it transforms my productivity in such a way that I get, you know, 10 times more work done because now I know how to use multiple cursors or there are things like that. And it's an example of how you can take whatever you happen to be working with, PHP, Atom, responsive design, there's relevance to what he's to what he's talking about. And the relevance continues, even if the technology isn't like the latest thing that's making headlines these days. Speaking of responsive design, I'm really glad that he took the time to properly define it because 
I have to remind myself every once in a while as well, responsive doesn't mean squishy. Responsive means that it literally responds to every device that is trying to use it. So that's a really big concept, and it, it's so much more than CSS media queries. And well, I mean, you, I believe, have done some work on responsive images as well. Yes, back in the day. Now, maybe two or three years ago. But yes, when you think about how you want to, I mean, they're a perfect example, perfect use case for responsive design. The image in a squishy sort of frame of mind, it doesn't matter. It takes the width of the device that's trying to use it, but it also takes all the bandwidth of the device that's trying to use it. And so it, from a responsive point of mind, you don't want to load the same size image for every single you know, for every single device. Some devices only have basic DPI screens wherein they can only load up a, a simple resolution and then others have crazy four times the resolution that the, a, another device at same size would and you have to know, all right, I want to load in a different image for that, but also I'm, I'm a little bit worried about bandwidth because this image is huge. What do I do here? There are a ton of things just to think about in terms of responsive design for images. One of the things that when I was reading his book that really caught my attention was how many different media query options there are, how many things you can query on. Like it never even occurred to me to think about, you know, bit depth. Is this a monochromatic device that I happen to be sending information to? There will be situations where, you know, somebody might be reading on a Kindle, for example, or, you know, it might be grayscale or whatever. And you want to be able to present an experience that's appropriate to that device, or you might even be targeting that as your primary device in which case other browsers might be the secondary, but the primary would be whichever one has that particular attribute. It's amazing how many different things you can query on. Yeah, there's orientation, ambient light. Those are two that I've almost never <laughs> used. But in different applications, they make a lot of sense. For example, if you are displaying a map that someone is going to need to use while they are biking or walking somewhere, right? You want to pay attention to, uh, is it dark outside? Because then I might want to change the visual properties of this thing so it's easier to look at and then look back at you know your surroundings in the dark versus in daytime. Sure. When you said a bike, I'm just imagining an environment where the acceleration of the of the user might be something that you would want to change how you present things. That could be in a VR environment, for example. Yeah, there's just so much to think about there. And then we also touched a little bit on mobile first design, which I'm going to posit. I keep saying posit. I don't actually know if that's a real world. <laughs> I'm going to present a question. Tell me what you think. I'm wondering if mobile first shouldn't be a term that's used anymore because it's not just mobile, right? In terms of actual design for a product, you essentially want to design least capability first, right? Because from a mobile first perspective, mobile could really mean anything. I would think what you would really want to design for is least capabilities to greatest capabilities, right? If I am trying to look at something from a smartwatch, if people are still into that, I'm only going to want to interact with an application through notifications. I'm not going to want to have to traverse using three inch screen the size of my wrist through a, a <laughs> complex application. I'm just going to want to say yes, no, send to my email, tap, tap, tap. That's all I really want to do. But if I'm on that same application on my, what is it, three foot wide monitor, I have all the room in the world and there's so much that I can do there. 
It's true. Well, it sounds like it, you know it's the distinction between progressive enhancement and graceful degradation. That's the progressive enhancement argument, where you want to take the least capable device and then add on features depending on the on the context in which the user happens to be, as opposed to the graceful degradation, where you start with all the features that you might want and then strip them away appropriately depending on the context. And I think either one works. It's kind of about how the designer thinks about the situation. I would say I prefer very much the progressive enhancement approach mm -hmm. because I, I've seen a lot wherein product managers tend to think of mobile as being as meaning that you don't need the same amount of features as desktop. And I don't necessarily like that idea because, for example, there's quite often, you know, my wife and I are sitting on the couch and watching TV and I'm doing something stupid on my phone, like looking at some bank statement or, or something, right, that I could obviously just grab my laptop and do. But at that point in time, I have my phone in my hands. I just remembered I needed to do something. And then I find out that I can't do what I wanted to do because someone decided, hey, this feature doesn't need to exist if you're looking through it on a phone. And that doesn't always apply. That's absolutely true. But I, I wonder if that's more of an engineer's perspective versus the designer's perspective. Because I, I think now about the conversation that happens between the designers and the engineers around development of a product. And the designers are thinking by default, I suppose, about all of the possibilities that a user might want to use to interact with an application. Whereas the engineer is thinking about how to build these things. And that conversation, maybe it's something we should have asked Chris about while he was with us, how you coordinate that conversation. Because when you talk about responsive design, the designer is a critical element of that conversation. And where is the designer's perspective? Are they thinking the big picture about every possible feature? Or should they be thinking first about the very minimum viable product? That's true. And to start, I always give my designers a simple rule that I try to keep followed as much as possible. And that is features should not depend on the size of a user's screen. Because if we are speaking in terms of capability, at this point, the phone to my right has almost all of the capabilities that the device that I'm using for this podcast right now has. Almost. Aside from, you know, a full keyboard that I can type with two hands, right? In that case, if I am working on an application that's supposed to work on both of those devices, I should be able to do everything within reason on either device, right? If that's uploading photos, well, that's a thing I can do. You know, location API, that works, HTML5 thing, there, right? But if you say, all right, we should, you know, we should remove this button because we're out of screen real estate. Well, then I would say we haven't accurately solved the challenges for designing this specific product because the only reason we're dropping the thing is the screen size is too small. I tend to see that as a, a bad option. A perfect example for this, at my job recently, we were looking at how to size a ledger for like a, an activity history right on a mobile device because it's tabular data but on a mobile device it's tables that gets really weird how do you display that and several times the option came up we just shouldn't let the user see this because the screen size is too small and i would always say no we cannot do that we can't do that because screen size should not limit a user's ability to view this important tabular data. We should present the table in a different way because we don't get to decide what device our user gets to use in order to interact with this feature. That's not really a fair thing. 
No, certainly it's not fair to the user. Again, it depends on the marketing goals of the product. I mean, this kind of gets back to the dark patterns where it's a question of whether or not we want to encourage users to use one device over another by making the experience on one device handicapped, yeah. making it more difficult. I never think that's a fair thing to try, specifically because what if I can only afford a mobile phone and I, I can't afford a second computer? Or I'm living in an area where the infrastructure for, I guess, cables, is that how the internet works? I should probably know, isn't there, but... <laughs> it's tubes, Tim. Right, it's tubes. Right, but the 3G infrastructure is, and so everybody uses mobile phones. You know, making that sort of call, sitting in a nice office in New York or San Francisco or wherever you happen to be, when you have access to both of those things, I don't think that's a fair assumption to make. Well, dare I say that you might be able to sell your advertisers on the fact that our users tend to be people who have higher end devices and live in places with higher bandwidth. And so you're not going to be, your ads aren't going to be clicked on by people who can't afford your products. Is that, that's just evil. That is pretty evil. But I mean, if you think of a product like Wikipedia, for example, you can learn how to do, how to perform an appendectomy on Wikipedia, which in some cases might be life-saving information, right? If Wikipedia decided <laughs> that you know you have to download the wikipedia app to view you know appendectomy information on your phone that would really suck you know for some people there's probably someone out there who has performed an appendectomy based off of wikipedia information <laughs> probably i mean i hope not but that situation had to have arisen yep and a shout out to hampton catlin one of the guys we interviewed a while back who was the person who designed wikipedia mobile yeah, and thank goodness he did it correctly, because I would think that's the perfect use case for here's why you shouldn't take away core functionality based on, you know, the size of the device. Mm -hmm. And a perfect example of responsive design. Well, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We always enjoy getting to talk technology with all of you. We'd also like to thank SitePoint.com and our producers, Adam Roberts and Ophelia Lachat, with production help from Ralph Mason. Please feel free to send us your comments on Twitter at Versioning Show, and give us a rating on iTunes and let us know how we're doing. We'll see you next time, and we hope you enjoyed this version.